Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. In a letter Gandhi wrote that uh, Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. 52% of American adults in a 2020 survey would agree with him. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union before it broke apart, said Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. H.G. Wells, a 19th century author and historian, contended that Jesus Christ was the most dominant figure in all history. John Lennon thought, quote and unquote, Jesus was all right. Fidel Castro, the late Fidel Castro, the former president of Cuba, once said, Christ chose the fishermen because he was a communist. (laughs) Other opinions of Jesus include that he was just a very good man, but a very influential man. Others contended that he was a prophet sent by God, like the prophet Muhammad. Jesus is considered by some as a great spiritual leader, on the same standing as Buddha. In a 2021 survey by NCLS, 22% of Aussies believe that Jesus is just a mystical and a fictional character. 29% said they didn't know if Jesus lived. Only 90% of Aussies believe that Jesus is a real person who actually lived. Who is Jesus? Or in the words of Jesus, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And how we answer Jesus' question has serious, present, and eternal implications. At a time when Christian beliefs and convictions are shaped more by social media than God's word and his community, this is an important question for us to explore this morning as we continue with our sermon series based on the Gospel of Luke. Just an aside, albeit an important one, we are preaching from the Gospel of Luke because it is connected to our church theme for the next two years, which is have faith in God. There are Jesus' words to his disciples in Mark chapter 11, verse 22. The only time Jesus was amazed, the only time Jesus was marvel was either in response to people's faith in him or their unbelief. In Luke 7, for instance, we see, God, we see Jesus gobsmacked by the centurion's simple faith in him. And then in stark contrast, we looked at Jesus equally gobsmacked by the unbelief of the people from his hometown, Nazareth, toward him. Therefore, when we talk about spiritual growth, when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about maturity, spiritual maturity and what that is, we cannot bypass the area of our faith in God. I want to submit to you that our faith in God is one of the most reliable indicators of where we are at in our relationship with God. The author of Hebrews states the importance of our faith very succinctly in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, It is impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Theophilus' faith is what Luke had in mind when he decided after much careful research to put pen to paper his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
Theophilus was a Gentile, probably a new believer, who first came to Judaism as a God-fearer before putting his faith in Jesus. So Luke is writing his gospel to strengthen, to encourage Theophilus and his fledgling faith in Jesus. So we read uh, Luke's preface to his book, to his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first. From, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The one essential certainty we can and must have in increasing measure is that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do. Whatever stage of life you're at, in the face of doubt, in the face of fear, in the face of trouble, uncertainty, anxiety, when your faith is stretched and tested, and it will be, Luke writes to reassure all of us that God did really step into history in the person of Jesus to offer salvation to all. That through him, we have been adopted into God's family. That he offers more than forgiveness, but also purpose and meaning in life. That in times of struggle, and suffering, God's spirit is there to be our source of comfort, hope, strength, and wisdom. In the text that we're looking at this morning in nine, Luke, 9, chapter, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27, our faith in Jesus is brought into a very sharp focus. At this time in the, in, in the gospel, we have reached a turning point in Luke's narrative about three things concerning Jesus. Number one, his identity. Number two, his mission. And number three, his commissioning of us. First, the identity of Jesus in verses 18 to 20. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Old Testament prophet, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Interestingly, this conversation, this incident takes place in a pagan area where the worship of the great god Pan, P-A-N, was especially prominent. In ancient Greek religion and mythology, Pan is the god of the wild, fields, groves, shepherds, and flocks. Rustic music, a god associated with fertility and the season of spring. The crowd accepted the fact that Jesus was no ordinary person. That's clear. He didn't need to be a rocket scientist to work that out. But each had his own theory as to why or how that, that was, just like today. Some thought that he was John the Baptist, back from the dead. 
Others wondered if Jesus was an ancient prophet re, uh, returning to announce the revival of Israel. Then Jesus gets personal with his disciples, as he does with all of us. What about you? I've heard what you have said about what others think. I want to know what you think. I want to know what you feel about me. Indeed, all of us, whether here in person or online, who do you say Jesus is? You might think that it's an odd question, given that I'm in a church addressing Christians. But while it is hardly surprising that non-Christians reject the deity of Christ, in the same survey I referred to earlier, it found that almost a third of Christians, evangelical Christians in the U.S., agree that Jesus was merely a great teacher and nothing more. A third. While 66% of them disagree with the statement, I quote, Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God, unquote, nearly as many agree with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And Jesus was created. Those stats are very, very concerning, to say the least. Peter, the apostle Peter, piped up as he usually does and said, Jesus, you are God's Messiah, or Christ of God, or the Christ of God. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which we trans transliterate as Messiah. Both words mean anointed one. In the Old Testament, anointing is mostly linked to the divine appointment of a person to rule as king connected to the Davidic dynasty. And this person, of course, is Jesus. While Peter's confession is not quite a confession of Jesus' deity, the following incident is. At his trial before the high priest when Jesus was asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus replied, I am, I am, and you will see it for yourself. The Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Mighty One, arriving on the clouds of heaven. That is a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7, which is a reference to, a future, to the future messianic divine ruler. The high priest immediately recognized Jesus' claim the divinity. That's why he tore his robe in anger and declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy or just punishable by death. But this was not the first time Jesus claimed divinity status. After he walked on water in front of the disciples, those who were in the boat worshipped him, Matthew recorded, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And Jesus didn't say, don't worship me. I'm just a man. I just happen to be walking on water. I have this amazing ability where I can suspend myself above water. But I'm not God. Don't worship me. He accepted their worship. He received their worship. He acknowledged their worship. Some women who were on their way to tell the rest of the disciples about his resurrection met Jesus along the way. Matthew wrote that they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Matthew 28, verse 9. And of course, who can forget doubting Thomas, who rejected outright the testimony of the disciples of Jesus' resurrection a week after the event. Remember Jesus' 
appeared in the room where they were gathered, appears, makes a personal appearance to Thomas and showed him the nail marks in his hands and feet and the wound in his side. And John wrote this in chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. C.S. Lewis was spot on when he wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can, call, uh, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. The mission of Jesus is the second aspect of Luke's narrative about Jesus that has reached a turning point. Now, while Peter makes the stunning confession, possible only, by the way, because God revealed it to him, he nor the other disciples comprehended what that meant until much later. But like most Jews at the time, if Jesus was the Messiah, then he's going to lead them to the glory days of David, King David and King Solomon. He would defeat the Romans, reestablish Israel as an independent country that will see an unprecedented period of agricultural and economical prosperity. Hence, Making public Peter's confession is not a good idea at a time when Jewish people detested being under Roman rule. You might remember the crowd of at least 5,000 whom Jesus fed miraculously in John chapter 6. They all wanted to make Jesus king by force. This is why immediately after Peter's confession, we read in verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone about this confession Peter has just made would have caused a riot, it would have caused an, uh, a revolution which Jesus didn't want at all. But the more cr- critical reason is because his agenda as the Messiah is completely at odds with their agenda for their Messiah. Indeed, in the next verse, Jesus crushes their expectations of him as the Messiah who would deliver them from Roman rule. He tells them, It is necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering, be tried and found guilty by the religious leaders, high priests and and religious scholars, be killed and on the third day be raised alive. Sorry, guys, I'm not the Messiah you want me to be. I'm not going to deliver you from the Romans through violence through an insurrection. I'm not going to deliver the world through that kind of a violent revolution. I am going to save the world. I am going to be the Messiah. But by laying down my life, I will suffer at the hands of people. And then I will die 
and I will be raised to life three days later. You could have almost hear the pin drop. Is that all you're going to, is that it? How, how is that good news? We want you to set us free from the oppression of the Romans. And instead, you're going to go to the cross, be crucified. But these truths are all rooted in the Old Testament. The disciples really should not have been surprised at what Jesus had said, because these truths are all found in the Old Testament. You will remember Jesus' words to, his two, to the two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus. Distressed, they were distressed and disillusioned by Jesus' death and his missing body. And this is what Jesus said to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. How foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, the Messiah. In other words, Jesus wasn't reinventing the Messiah. He was being the Messiah that the Old Testament had clearly predicted. It's there all along. They just were blind and couldn't see it. And in a very real way, we're no different from the disciples with our expectations of Jesus. We want to make him into our own image, and Jesus refuses to. And we need to let go of so many of our expectations because they're not rooted in Scripture. We want Jesus to be able to do this. We expect him to do that. We expect him to do this. And Jesus says, I'm going to crush your expectations. I'm not the Messiah you want me to be. And we have to go back to the Scripture. Learn the scripture, read the scripture, study the scripture, stop imposing our expectations on Jesus. Instead, turn it around and say, Lord Jesus, instead of putting expectations on you, we want to start submitting ourselves to your expectations of us, which is the next point in Luke's narrative that has reached a turning point. And it concerns his expectations, if you like, of his disciples, his commissioning of his disciples. Here are Jesus' words. Verses 23 to 26. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, and in Mark's gospel, he adds, for the gospel's sake, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The disciples did not expect this. They thought they were going to be a part of Jesus' cabinet when he defeats the Romans. You'll remember how they were jostling for position. Who was going to be on the left and the right side of Jesus? Who was going to be his chief of staff? who's going to be the deputy prime minister. But he tells them, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. But what does it mean to deny yourself and take up the cross daily? And this is not a periodic practice, but a call to entire way of life. Firstly, in the New Testament, the Greek word translated as to deny almost always has overtones of connection to a person. 
For instance, when Peter denied having any association with Jesus, he denied Jesus. He denied having any relationship with Jesus. So you can argue that uh, another correct translation of deny would be to disown or renounce. So to deny self, as Christy Gambrel, a Bible teacher, puts it, is the intentional disowning of the self or stepping away from relationship with the self as primary, as the center. Jesus is not making a statement about whether the self is bad, but about who we're most closely associated with. Who is our primary allegiance to? To him or to ourselves? This is Jesus' call to discipleship, to put him first above all else, to put our faith in Jesus rather than ourselves. To deny yourself does not mean to hate oneself, to put oneself down, to ignore oneself, to pretend about our desires, our longings, our aches, our pain, which is how we often define the word to deny yourself. Just soldier on. Deny yourself. Put yourself down. Your feelings don't matter. Your thoughts don't matter. Your opinions don't matter. Your desires don't matter to God. And that is not what it means to deny yourself. Secondly, what does it mean to take up one's cross? Remember, Jesus made this statement before he was crucified, right? So when the audience heard it, they weren't thinking of Jesus dying on the cross. They couldn't see that coming. We know that because when it happened, they were all dumbfounded, shocked, paralyzed. So when Jesus said it, he said it to mean something to the audience. And the audience who heard it would have also understood what he was saying. Sure, the metaphor would have taken an incredible significance after his death, but we have to assume that his audience would have surely understood what he meant beforehand. And they did. So when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up the cross, the image that came to their mind was the crucifixion. The crucifixion. Not his crucifixion, but crucifixion in general. The practice where a condemned person is forced to carry the crossbeam to the place of execution. A barbaric practice of torture and execution used by the Romans for criminals to strike fear in the hearts of the peoples they've conquered, to deter the enemies of Rome, seeking to rebel against their rule. Quoting Christy Gambrel again regarding the crucifixion. This showed, or the crucifixion showed, that although the person, the criminal, had, had rebelled against authority, the condemned person was now so completely conquered that his last act in life would be to carry the instrument of his demise to the place of his death. It was a show of complete and utter submission. A call to bear one's cross as part of following Jesus then is a call to be as submitted to Christ as the condemned criminal was to his death. That's what it means to take up the cross. I accept that as my fate. Like the condemned person, 
There's no turning back. There's no way out. I'm heading to my place of execution. Is he carrying the beam? My fate is decided. And in the same way, Christians are to approach the following of Jesus in the same way. I identify with you in your death, Lord. There is no turning back. I'm fully submitted to you just as a condemned person fully is submitted to his death. In short, in calling us to deny ourselves and take up the cross, Jesus is claiming total authority over every area of our lives, in every corner of our hearts. That's what it means. If you want to be my disciple, then you have to understand that you come to me as your Lord. You do not make me into your image. You do not fashion me according to how you want me to be. I am your Lord. You are not my Lord. I'm not your butler. Don't treat me as one. I'm the Lord who gave up his life to redeem yours. So the central question then is, will we submit to his authority? Will we submit to his rule over our lives? Will we say yes to Jesus? The issue is not the costliness of following Jesus, but our willingness to follow him regardless of the cost. Let me repeat that. The issue is not the costliness of following Jesus, but our willingness to follow him regardless of the cost. Who could forget, hey, the iconic Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of the British rock group, Queen, who died in 1991 at the age of 45 of AIDS-related pneumonia. The confession to make, I like a few of his songs. He has an incredible vocal range. We will, we will. <laughs> He's great. He was regarded one of the greatest singers in the history of rock music. He possessed a four-octave vocal range. Queen, formed in 1970, sold over 300 million records worldwide. In one of his last songs, he wrote, does anyone, does anybody know what we're living for? Does anybody know what we're living for? Despite his incredible success, talent, fortune, and fame, he said this in an interview shortly before he died. Quote, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. Jesus said, whoever tries to save their life will lose it. Whoever tries to save their life will lose it. Whoever tries to make meaning of their life without God, they will lose it. They will not find what they're looking for on their own apart from God. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. What good is it for any man gain the whole world, and yet forfeit their very self. 
When you think of that verse, think of Freddie Mercury and many others like him. So when Jesus calls us to take up the cross and deny ourselves, it is not a call to repress yourself. It is not a call to suppress yourself. It is not a call to hate yourself. It is a call to a dynamic, fulfilling, meaningful relationship with him that comes through surrender, that comes through placing our trust in him. That's why Jesus said, have faith in God. Put your faith in me. Don't let fear drive you away from me. Don't let the devil say to you, the closer you are to God, the the less you will enjoy life, the less you will get out of life. The truth, it's the complete opposite. The more we surrender to Jesus, the more we give our lives over to Jesus, the more we will discover what life is all about. And on Friday, we celebrated Betty's funeral. And in Betty, that's what we see. Simple woman. She'd been a Christian since her 20s, I think. And throughout her life, even after when she lost Bill, she kept living for Jesus. She grieved. She missed her Bill. She was devastated when Bill died in 2011. But what I saw was a woman who can teach us how to grieve properly. She grieved. She lost Bill. Bill was no longer in her life. When, when Bill died, they had been married for 55 years. I had not even lived that long in 2011. So I cannot, I cannot imagine waking up one morning, rolling over, and not finding your partner of 55 years there. Can you imagine that? He's out permanently. And yet Betty never stopped living. She grieved, but she never stopped living. She came to church until she couldn't. Every Sunday, she'd be right there. She attended Shale's Life Together group until she couldn't. And the majority of the people in the Life Together group, all younger, all, all younger than her, she brought her Bible and she engaged. There's a picture that Robin took of her reading the book of Mark. must have been studying the book of Mark. So don't fall for that lie that the more you surrender to God, the more you submit to God, the closer you are to God, the less living you will do on the contrary. So whether you're in person watching or listening online or in person here, perhaps you have reached a turning point in your life just as Luke in his gospel concerning three things about Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Jesus tells us three significant things about Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh who was sent on the rescue mission to save us through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is God in the flesh sent to be our Savior and our Lord who claims exclusive authority over every area of our life. So the application is a very simple one for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. What is your response going to be? What is your response going to be? If he's not Lord of your life and Savior, if he's not the Savior of your life, what will you do if he's not Lord of your life? What is your response going to be?
We're going to close with this song as a prayer, but also as a declaration. I believe. I think it's a very appropriate song to the message we just heard. So I'd like us to stand as we close our service with I believe. When we say we believe, it is more than mental assent. It is more than a confession we make, but a conviction that the words of Jesus are trustworthy, they're reliable, and that they're truth. So when we come to the bridge, can you put up the bridge for me, huh? I believe. Okay, there's the bridge then. When we come to that bridge, may the Holy Spirit enables us to sing with passion and conviction those words. I believe in you. I believe you rose again, and I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? So you want to lift your hands, lift your hands. If you want to move your body, I don't know, move your body. But don't just go, yeah, I believe in you. I believe you rose again. Yeah, I believe you rose again. That's pretty cool. Believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah. <sighs> Seriously. I believe in you. I believe you rose again. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? All right. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.